All right, let's say a word of prayer again. Father, we're approaching your word, so we ask for your assistance in helping us focus and hear what you want us to hear from this important text. You tell us uh, how to be in your kingdom, how to represent you in this world, and we want to do it right. So we ask for you to plant this word deep in us. In Christ's name, amen. Well, we're still in that part of Matthew's gospel that's devoted to training the disciples, and he won't be with them much longer. And they've got a lot of growing to do still. So, so far it's, actually if you're sort of reading this like fresh, it's sort of like scary. Um, the way the disciples are knowing that Jesus is leaving soon and that the entire kingdom of God is going to be entrusted into their hands and that these uh, fellows are going to be taking the gospel to the world. He's been trying to build leadership qualities into them and teach them humility and mold them into servants not just of him but of those they're going to be ministering to to be servants to the people they're going to be shepherding and he's been explaining also what's coming and so they need to be ready and they don't seem ready and this section of Matthew's gospel um, really began in chapter 16 and it's there where we first see the announcement Jesus makes of his impending death and resurrection chapter 16 verse 21 it says from that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised on the third day and then in chapter 17 there's another statement just like that verse 22 while they were gathering together in Galilee Jesus said the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him and he will be raised on the third day and it says they were deeply grieved so interspersed with all these experience Jesus is um, having with his men as they're ministering to other people including the disciples uh, weaknesses their failures their uh, sins he's been telling them what's coming and they don't like to hear it in fact Jesus teaching about his own end is so at odds with the expectations the disciples have of messianic glory that it, it seems like every time he talks about it they don't really get it. It's like they think there's something else behind that or it means something else or something like that. You can't really blame them. I mean, because he does talk about the kingdom coming and his glorious reign. We just saw in chapter 19, verse 28, his promise to them that in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Well, that's what they want to hear. That's the, that's the exciting part. So they're still being told there will be a kingdom with Christ on his glorious throne. And they've always believed in that coming kingdom. I mean, um, so they've been looking for that. So the suffering and dying talk, they can't quite get that to fit in. It's very hard for them to grasp. But it seems plain enough, this language of suffering and death, it's very explicit. Sometimes... Jesus does talk in parables and sometimes he uses illustrations to reveal truth sometimes he uses figurative language so I'm wondering if they think that's somehow some kind of mystery thing you know um, they definitely believed he was the Messiah and the Messiah was born to rule Israel and not die at the hands of his enemies but um, so they don't seem to take his words at face value with regard to his suffering and death they, um, they do seem to expect some sort of suffering and ordeal of some kind but in our text this morning, in Matthew 20, 17, he brings up this whole question again 
of his suffering. So it says as Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, and this is the last time he's going. As Jesus was about to go to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside by themselves, and on the way, he said to them, behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. And he will and will hand him over to the Gentiles to mock and scourge and crucify him. And on the third day, he will be raised up. It's often a lot of little interesting details in the Gospels, so the interesting detail here is that they're on the way. They're starting that walk, they're that path to Jerusalem, this band of disciples, and maybe other followers of Jesus, too, and likely many other people that are on the road just going to Jerusalem for Passover. I mean, that's... It's probably actually pretty busy. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus was striding in front of the apostles and the other disciples uh, behind him. And Mark says of those behind, they were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. It's the way he's moving. It's something about him. He hasn't said anything yet at there in that point in Mark's gospel where it describes that. It's not his normal walking, talking, being with them. Um, it's, it, but they're amazed by it, and some of them are afraid of it, what, what it is. It's something in his demeanor, the resolve, the determination to meet his appointed hour. There's something about the look in his eye or something. And um, Isaiah chapter 50 actually has a really interesting prophetic description of the Messiah, um, his willingness to give himself over to suffering in obedience to God. Let me read that for you. This is from Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. Just listen. It says, I gave my back to those who strike me and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint and I know that I will not be ashamed. He who vindicates me is near, he who, he who will contend with me. Let us stand up to each other who has a case against me. Let him draw near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who is he who condemns me? Behold, they will all wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them. In that line, I've set my face like flint seems to be the description here of this determination, this confident approach to Jerusalem, this unashamed, unrelenting person utterly determined to suffer in complete innocence for the Lord will to be done. So he moves forward and at some point as we have seen he takes the 12 aside from the others and once again he tells them what's coming. That's what we read in verse 17 through 20. And he's very specific but they don't get it. And Luke when his gospel when he relates the same incident in chapter 18 verse 34 he says but the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. I mean, it sounds plain enough. He describes exactly what's going to happen, but something's preventing them. So it's a hidden reality to them. It doesn't say what prevented them. It could be an outside influence. It could be the Lord himself just kind of keeping it from them until it's all revealed in realities, and then they'll remember it. But it could have been just their, their traditional understanding of the Messiah prevented them from being able to see Jesus doing anything less than sitting on David's throne with Rome at his feet. I mean, that's what they were looking for. And one thing does seem clear to them, it, it's coming to a conclusion. Um, these three 
plus years they've been ministering with Jesus, it's drawing to a close. They can tell um, that they're on the way to something, some end of it all, and something's coming. They think it's something grand, maybe. Um, He's talking about something very different. But to the apostles, to the disciples, if it's ever time to start jockeying for position in the kingdom, now's the time. Jesus will be picking his top men out of the 12. They're thinking he's going to sit on his glorious throne, Messiah. He's going to present himself as the Messiah, and now's the time to make their move. He already told them they would be sitting on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel, but only two thrones can be in the position of honor, just two, one on the right and one on the left, right next to the king, his immediate presence. And in the world of monarchs in the ancient world, those were the positions of the highest honor, those, the one immediately on the right and immediately on the left of where he sat. So James and John and their mother decide that this is the right time to ask for these positions before anybody else does, before the assignments are actually handed out. So verse 20, then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making a request of him. So here she comes, Mrs. Zebedee, the ultimate stage mother. (laughs) She bows before Jesus and she asks him to grant her a favor. But it wasn't just her. Mark tells this story without even mentioning her. He just talks about James and John like she wasn't even there. But she does do the speaking. But um, James and John aren't like, oh, mom, stop. Oh, they're rolling their eyes. No, it's a plan. It's a family plan. They're presenting this desire to Jesus, and um, they, they thought she would be the best one to approach him about that. And, of course, Jesus isn't the type to say when somebody says, would you do me a favor? He says, sure, whatever you want. He doesn't do that. He's not dumb. So he says, what do you wish? And here it comes, verse 21. She said to him, command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. So her request is about his kingdom and her boy's position in the kingdom. And just as a side note, there is some... um, historical evidence that the mother of James and John is Salome, who was one of the women who was with Mary, Jesus' mother, at the cross. So there was a little group of women there that witnessed the crucifixion, and she may have been that person. Mark mentions a woman named Salome, and Matthew 27, 56 says that that James and John's mother was at the cross. So that might be the same person. Certainly this woman was at the cross. Mrs. Zebedee was there. She might be that Salome person as well. But there's even a tradition that Salome is Mary's sister. So James and John may have been Jesus' cousins. Sort of the nepotism thing, you know? Like uh, Bobby Kennedy being the attorney general for President Kennedy. You know, it's that kind of a situation. Hey, we're family, you know? Why don't you put us in a good position? Anyway, it could be that that's true, but we don't know that for a fact. But um, she was an important part of the band, the group there, um, ministering to their needs. Mrs. Mrs. Zebedee was, and she was at the cross, for sure. What matters is uh, what what Matthew wants us to get from this is the ambition that's on display in the disciples and in their mother. So what, what matters to him, and for our instruction, is the heart condition of these people seeking to exalt themselves over, over the others. And Jesus has stressed the importance of being a servant. The greatest, he's said over and over again, is the servant of all. 
The greatest in the kingdom is the servant of all. But that just doesn't sink in yet either. It's a, it's a lesson that still has to take root. Um, very soon after this event happens, he's going to be in the upper room with them and he's going to wash their feet, which is the greatest example of the king of the universe washing the feet of wicked men. So um, servanthood, servanthood. That's what he's been trying to teach them. And that, after the crucifixion and the resurrection, when they start reflecting back on that, they'll remember his words and that he washed their feet and then, then it clicks in. That's when they start to understand. But here, ambition, ambition. The ruin of many souls still driving these men. And that's not unusual. That's the way of the world, right? That's the way of the world. But the way of the world is exactly what the kingdom of God has come to overthrow. So they're acting like worldly people and Jesus wants them to act like kingdom people. There's, there's no room for personal ambition or making a name for yourself or power plays with each other. There's so much in us that has to be crucified to serve Jesus properly that we have to put to death. Vain ambition is just one of those things, but it's a big one. It's a big one. Well, Jesus' response to all of this is really quite remarkable. He just takes them at their word and you know what we say to God matters. Always be careful what you say to him. And what they're gonna end up with is a promise of suffering and absolutely no guarantee about their request to sit on his right or his left. He tries to warn them in verse 22 with a question. Jesus answered, you do not know what you are asking. They should have picked that up right there. You don't know what you're asking. But he says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, if they were smart, they would say, what cup is that? What cup is that? What is that? He's giving them a wide open door to ask after he says you don't know what you're asking for. And then he uses this illustration, this this kind of figurative language, and they should have asked. But they're not doing that. They're all about the position of honor, right? So they're trying to impress him with their uh, willingness to be on the spot with him, you know, and be good servants and all that. So they, they want to show complete loyalty. So we're able. We're, yes, absolutely. We are able to drink that cup you're drinking. But it's a cup of suffering. It's not a cup of honor. It's not a cup of glory. It's not a cup of high position. So a cup, to drink a cup is a Hebraic way of talking, and it means to fully immerse yourself in an experience, um, fully undergo the experience of something. Sometimes it has a positive meaning. Jeremiah 16, 7, it says it's a, a cup of consolation, means that you'll fully experience the consolation and peace of God. But usually it's connected to something negative, sorrow. Um, Jeremiah 25, 15, it says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Take this cup of the wine of wrath from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. So if you drink the cup of God's wrath, you're going to fully experience his wrath in your life. Psalm 11:6: fire, brimstone, and burning will be the portion of their cup. That's what they're fully going to experience. Of course, the immediate context of Matthew 20 is that of suffering. The cup symbolizes Again, what you imbibe, what you take to yourself. And Jesus is saying, will you suffer with me? Like me? And they're saying, we're able, without asking what the cup was. So perhaps they're just in their job interview mode. Oh yeah, oh yeah, you tell us, we'll do it. Yeah, well that's right. 
trying to look good, confident, self-assured, wanting to appear capable. Basically, you know, to sit on the right and the left, they're basically asking Jesus to be the prime minister and the Lord Chancellor of his kingdom while he's the king, and that's quite an ask. So they're kind of presenting themselves as these super capable people. And just three years before, they were fishermen, you know, in Galilee. But if you think about it, they were called personally by Jesus to be part of his group. They had seen unbelievable miracles and he had granted all of the 12 power to do some of these kinds of miracles, heal people, uh, cast out demons and things like that. And compared to the other 10 disciples, well, why not ask, right? Why not ask? Weren't James and John part of the inner circle? I mean, there's a lot of things that only James and John and Peter saw. So really what they're doing is if they're thinking like the world thinks, well, we're kind of his inner group out of the 12 and you know, we were there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus. The other guys weren't except Peter. So let's ask before Peter asks. You know, it's a little competition thing going on there. So we are able, certainly as able as Peter or Andrew or Thaddeus. Right, James? Right, John. You know, it's that kind of a thing. <laughs> so let's have mom ask him. So there they are, these proud, ambitious young men. We are able. And then Jesus says something very haunting, really. Verse 23, my cup you shall drink. But to sit on my right and on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. I don't think that was the answer they were looking for. But it's the right answer to curb their pride you know what, you will drink this cup, you are gonna suffer. They don't even get that part yet. But he says, but the right and left thing, that's not up to me anyway. So that's a maybe, that's a maybe. But the cup, for sure, the cup you can drink, you'll have that. You asked for it, you said you were able. So suffering is before them, persecution, deprivation. But as far as the request goes, you just have to see. I'd love to see and hear Jesus' face and hear his, the, the tone of his voice when he said, my cup you shall, you shall drink. I just would love to hear how he said that. Was it soft or kind of firm? I, I don't know, but it makes me wonder about that. But they're oblivious to the true meaning of it. Whatever the case, Jesus knows their future. In fact, not long after Jesus is gone, in Acts chapter 5, um, verse 40, when the church is just getting away, the apostles are already getting beaten and flogged. So um, it started early. By Acts chapter 12, James, one of the brothers here, is executed by Herod Antipas, which is really early in church history. He was the first real apostle to die a martyr's death. And all the training and years that he spent with Jesus and getting him ready and not that long, a few years maybe, he's, he's dead. He's already cut down. John, the surviving brother, he's the one that outlived all the apostles, but he had a lot of unique kind of suffering as well. We don't know much about his years in Asia Minor. All we know is that he was extremely influential there. If you go to Turkey today and talk to any Christians there or just look at the archaeology of it, it's all about John. I mean, his impact there is enormous, and he's still remembered there, but... You know, the last years of his life, he was banished. The Romans liked to banish people to these wretched little rock islands if they didn't like them, and that's what they did to him. So he had to live on this small little rocky island in the Mediterranean called Patmos, and 
Um, he spent years there. And he mentions it himself in the book of Revelation, Revelation 1-9, because that's, that's where he received the book of Revelation, there in that horrible place. And he suffered there. So these two men would have their share in the cup of suffering. But the two thrones, the two thrones, what about them? All they get is a maybe, maybe. That's the Father's decision. And as we talked about last time, what did Jesus say? The last shall be first. Remember that? said that just back a little bit earlier. The last shall be first. That implies that humility goes a long way with the Father. And if you want to end up in that position, you better humble yourself and serve other people. They, would, they did learn that eventually, how to do that. So uh, maybe you're wondering what the other apostles thought about this rather bold request from Mrs. Zebedee bowing down with her boys. And well, they got mad. What do you mean? They're all put out by it. You know, they've been outmaneuvered, thrown over, disrespected, and they're steaming mad. Verse 24, after hearing this, the 10 became indignant with the two brothers. Of course, they're only angry because they have the same ambitions, right? And uh, they beat them to it. So uh, remember for Jesus, this is, this is literally happening on the road to Calvary. Now, they're, they're fighting each other now. They're squabbling. So they, they make the request, and whatever happens after that, the disciples start hitting on them, you know, and pushing them and arguing with them about that. And Peter, Peter's the better one. No, no, it's, you know, that could be on and on. And they're actually like moved away from Jesus because it says that he has to call them back over to him. It's really something. So he's, he, his time with them is drawing to a close and they're acting like worldlings. And it's just a horrible scene. When are they going to get it? So this lesson about pride and ambition and the need for humility and childlikeness that he's talked about several times it just seems like it's not sinking in. You know, Bishop Ryle, J.C. Ryle from the late 1800s, he, um, he said something really important. He said, there may be pride, jealousy, and love of preeminence even among the true disciples of Christ. That is true. That is true. That's one of those things we have to kill within ourselves. We should shun that. But Jesus is very patient. He instructs them yet again calmly and with great clarity here. But anyway, he calls them over after they've sort of gotten into this tangle. And what he says to them here then um, sets the standard for ministry in the church, in the kingdom of God. You, you can measure the quality of a ministry in any place by this standard here. And it has nothing to do with influence. It has nothing to do with power or fame or you know, rich, riches and big displays or anything like that. So these words are fundamental in all Christian ministry and work. And if what Jesus describes here isn't the dominant quality in church leadership in some particular place, go somewhere else. I would say, run away, run away. Walk away at least. These are the words of our Lord, verse 25. Jesus called them to himself and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And the great men exercise authority over them. It is not this way among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Servanthood. 
A leader in the kingdom of Christ is leading on behalf of people, not for himself. Bishop Ryle, again, just talking about this passage, he summarized it really well when he said, a life of self-denying kindness to others is the true secret of greatness in the kingdom of Christ. And he goes on to say, the standard of the world and the standard of the Lord Jesus are indeed widely different. They are more than different. They are flatly contradictory to one another. Among the children of this world, he is thought the greatest man who has the most land, the most money, the most servants, the most rank, most earthly power. Among the children of God, he is reckoned as the greatest who does the most to promote the spiritual and temporal happiness of his fellow creatures. True greatness consists not in receiving but in giving, not in self-absorption of good things but in imparting good to others, not in being served but in serving, not in sitting still and being ministered to but going about and ministering to others. Greatness as service, that's what the kingdom of God is about and that's what it's like. And this principle is so world-changing that for a time it actually entered into our culture, even sort of outside Christianity, our culture began to adopt that point of view one time because Christianity used to have a pretty influential impact on how people thought about things. Who were the two greatest United States presidents? If I'd asked that question in the past, everybody would have said the same two names. I mean, 90% of the people would have said the same two names. Nowadays, people would say, whoever the, oh, who are presidents? Oh, Obama and Bush, because they were the only ones I can think of, or something like that, right? But it was George Washington and, and Abraham Lincoln. That's why they have holidays, right? They were the two greatest. What made them great? Servant leadership. That's why we remember them. George Washington did what nobody could do. He beat the British Empire. He had help, but he did it. And he went home. He went home. Nobody could believe it. The British couldn't believe it. The European kings and princes couldn't believe it. What do, you, what do you mean he went home? He defeated a king and he went home? Yeah, and he stayed home for a long time until the Constitutional Convention, which was years later. And then they wanted him to be president. Okay, I'll be president. I'll be the first president. Served two terms and went home. Went home. He just didn't need it. He didn't need to be the Grand Poobah or the King of America or anything like that. Have you seen some of the paintings, the early paintings? They actually have him like a, a messiah figure on the, um, you know, in golden stuff, like he's like some super big. He didn't think of himself that way. Abraham Lincoln, he was so badly treated by his own people, you know, his own cabinet, his, uh, his enemies hated him, his generals mocked him, they ignored him, they mistreated him, and he just took it because the country was more important than he was. He never sought revenge on those people ever. He just did his thing, worked it, worked the plan, saved our country. That's why they're the two greatest, because of this humility, strength of character, but humility with regard to other people. They didn't have to win or be on the top or anything like that. So that was greatness in the secular realm. It's a lost greatness, obviously. Humility is not weakness, though. It's, it's power exercised for the good of other people, truly exercised for that, not to manipulate them into loving you, but just to serve them. That's what true greatness is. So it, uh, it, and that's what it, the church has to be run that way. It has to be the heart of any leadership in the church. That has to be what we're here for. So the disciples were looking 
forward to positions of power. And that's what he's got to deal with. We want rank and prestige. But he's telling them they can't have that in this life. That's not going to be there. They would drink the cup modeled by Jesus himself as one despised and rejected of men. That was the cup they had to be willing to drink. You remember Paul's description of an apostle? He's writing to a a different generation of ambitious churchmen. And Paul wrote, I think God has exhibited us apostles last of all as men condemned to death because we have become a spectacle to the world both to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. And we toil, working with our own hands. And when we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we are slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. I do not write these things to shame you, but to admonish you as my beloved children. That's 1 Corinthians 4. He isn't interested in lording it over them, but he's admonishing them. He's he's correcting them by describing how miserable his life is. It's pretty interesting. In 2 Corinthians, he writes to that same church Chapter 11, verse 24, he says, Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? But if I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. That is not the life that James and John are envisioning for themselves. They're not seeing that. But that's the life that that they were called to. That's the life that they're going to find themselves in. So for Christ, we have to endure whatever the world throws at us. And our ambition, our ambition should be to serve, to, to lift up other people, to let them stand on our backs, you know, or on our shoulders. And Jesus, by his life, and his very purpose for being here on earth leads the way for us. That's why he says in verse 28, just, for this, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many. There's two really important verbs there in verse 28. Serve and give. The Son of Man came to serve and to give. So Jesus, to whom all glory is due in the universe, chose to serve. He who alone is worthy stoops to serve willingly and gladly. He does what the Father wants without complaining. He serves out of love, knowing that the Father's will is the highest good that there is. And Scripture, and over and over, portrays Jesus as serving others. And the motive that's ascribed to him all that time is compassion. That's that's what's moving his heart. He's moved with compassion. We are moved by so many different things, desires and drives in our hearts. How often are we moved by compassion? 
but he always was. The second verb, give, what, is, what does he give? His life as a ransom for many. You might want to make note in your Bible on this word ransom in verse 28. We think of ransom as money paid to a kidnapper, right? Do you ever hear ransom used in other contexts in our time? I don't. That's almost always what it is, paying ransom to a kidnapper. But if you lived in the first century, we would hear that word and we would think this, not kidnapping, but this is the price somebody pays to buy somebody out of slavery. That's what a ransom was. That's what that word meant back in the first century a price to purchase someone's freedom. So not usually in the context of a kidnapping, but just, just typical slave situation. So Jesus pays a ransom, a price, to set us free. And his life is the payment for that. So the bondage for human beings is sin and death. Not literal slavery under a human being is being talked about, but our bondage to our sin. We are we are held as rebels against God under a sentence of condemnation because rebels will be condemned. We are held captive to this divine law because we've broken it and now we're guilty before it in the eyes of God. So Christ satisfies the justice of God against sinners by offering his life in our place. He actually pays the actual penalty. The penalty is death. It's exclusion from the kingdom of God. And he bore our penalty. It's the ultimate act of service. There's nothing like it that's ever happened. It's the greatest story ever told. That the creator of the universe would die for wretched, rebellious creatures. Compassion. That's why he did it. And that's, that's why it's essential, if I make a, a side note in theology real quick, it's really essential to believe in what's called the substitutionary atonement of Christ because that's the heart of the gospel. There's people that like to dispense with, oh, let's not talk about blood and suffering and things like that. What kind of God would like a bloody sacrifice of a man to appease him? A holy God would like that. And a God that sent his own son to be that sacrifice would like that because sin does bring condemnation and death upon humanity. So let's remember what Jesus is telling his men here. And they won't understand the ransom talk yet, but they will soon, because in a matter of weeks, crucified, resurrected Jesus is going to make it clear to them. But they will see not only that it's true, but that it's true for them. He is their substitute. His death is for their sins. They have been set free from the penalty of death by his blood. And they will serve him faithfully. And when we acknowledge Jesus as our King and as our Messiah, we are forgiven and set free from sin as well. But there is a call to duty that comes with that, and that's death. When we acknowledge Christ as our King and our Messiah, then, then we are forgiven and set free from sin. And with that being set free, there's this call to duty, and that is to be serving Him. It's a call to humility to serve other people, just like all those people right now just serve that, that woman. Rank and position and glory seeking is not what the kingdom is about. That's the, that's the key there. Jesus is our model. He gives rather than takes. He assumed the lowliest position to become the savior of the world. And Peter said, as we read earlier in the service today, to follow, remember the three words? Follow in his steps, right? To be like him. Ambition, 
Ambition can be good and ambition can be bad. What's a good ambition? The Apostle Paul had ambitions. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition to be pleasing to him. It's always my, my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, Romans 15, 20. That's his ambition, to preach Christ. Be ambitious for Christ, not yourself, and drink whatever cup he has for you, and you will have served your purpose on earth. Thrones and crowns and rewards and the well done, that all comes later. The believer is about serving right now. For now we walk and we serve and we take the lowly place by faith. Let's pray. Father, we pray for our sister. We just pray that she's going to be all right. Get her the help she needs. And we just ask for you to bless her, Lord. And we pray that as we reflect on the words of Christ this morning, we see that her, our sin is not to be in this area of ambition for worldly acknowledgements. We don't need pats on the back to serve you. Servants don't even seek that. They just want to serve, do their job. We pray for that grace to be humble enough. James and John did learn it. They became great servants unto death. And we pray that we would be that way as well. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen.